This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. Every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 154th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Mighty Thor, number 20, from Marvel Comics, cover dated August 2017. But first, a little feedback. Vic, in Phoenix, wrote in generally on the entire output of the Relatively Geeky Network, but he did include this bit. As a truck driver, I have endless daytime hours to fill, and I've greatly enjoyed your format, even as it has changed to a less rigid definition of quarter bin. Actually, Vic, I like that. Less rigid. That's fair. Makes me sound more open-minded. Thanks for writing in, Vic. Now, last time we covered the Thor Annual, number six, and the biggest Thor fan I know, Manuel Carmona from Truthful Comics, was excited that I was covering that issue. And it's a preview of what's to come with the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which apparently will feature Thor. You know, I knew of that plan, or at least that rumor, Uh, whatever it was, but I completely forgot to mention that in that episode. Very good port, Manuel. Thank you. And we heard from podcasting's Michael Bailey. Professor, you brought up a seriously controversial topic in that episode. I thought about not responding to it, but I decided I couldn't let it stand. Oh, boy. Okay, Michael, bring it on. Annuals are part of a run. If you want to say you have a complete collection of a series, annuals need to be included. I know, that's a hard line, but I'm drawing it. Listeners, please direct all that vitriol, all that venom, towards at Bailey Podcasts on Twitter. I'm just saying. Just saying. On a slightly less silly note, Michael continues, it's really weird hearing about classic Guardians of the Galaxy stories now after two successful movies and them playing a big role in the last two Avengers films. While some of them appeared in the second film, Yandu is the only one of these that gained any traction, and his movie version is so different from the pseudo-new-wave-looking character that appeared in the comics. I wonder what people who discovered the Guardians through the movies think of these original comics. Anyway, great show as always. Take care and keep up the good work. Podcastings, Michael Bailey. Thank you, Mike. I'm glad we know each other well enough and for long enough that we can tackle the biggest issues of the day. Next time, Let's chat about Superman's mullet. Oh, 
Okay, so that's where the line is. Good to know. And Sir Luke Giaconetti had thoughts on that episode. Avast! This annual sounds like a barrel of fun. This style of annual, an oversized done-in-one, is my favorite kind of annual. Just something about using those extra pages to cram in more heroes and more action appeals to me. The Marvel Wikia shows this annual coming out in December 1977. Just four months earlier, Iron Man Annual 4 was released. These two issues are perfect complements to each other, as the Iron Man book features the Golden Avenger teaming up with another B-list team, this time the Champions. Great Bronze Age Marvel fun. Really dug the episodes and looking forward to more rule-breaking in the coming episodes. Thank you, Luke. And just between us, I've been enjoying breaking the rules. Just saying. And of course, as that old comic book podcasting saying goes, it all comes back to Iron Man? Yeah, okay. I guess for Luke it probably does. And from a good friend from across the pond, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, who said it was a splendid episode. Thank you. I've not read this issue, but I've had a look on Marvel Unlimited, and boy, is that splash page rough. It doesn't look like Sal Buscema and Klaus Janssen. It's like an eight-year-old copying from a coloring book. But isn't that logo Marvel used for Thor annuals in the Treasury Edition just the greatest? You know, flipping back through and, and looking at that, Martin, it is pretty darned mighty. Anyway, this looks like a fun piece of fat filler fluff. Good for fans of the original Guardians. If nothing else, it gives us the fabulous phrase, star-flecked firmament. Yes, try to work that into a music review, won't you, Martin? And then Sir Martin gets into the actual potential controversy from last episode, where I said I appreciated the even-handedness that I interpreted in how the subject of anti-nuclear activism was handled. He asked me if I was sure the comic was presenting both sides of the nuclear argument. The only commentary one way or the other seems to be that however noble might be thy cause. That line from Thor, and despite the might, seems pretty clear to me that the long-haired Avenger isn't a fan of fission. We actually uh, went back and forth, me and Martin, on this a, a, a couple of times. And I, I guess just to reiterate or, or, or maybe to clarify, my view is that the book did not take a strong partisan stand, or at least did not present that in such a way that would turn off or drive away folks who held the opposite position. It wasn't just the specific position being taken or not, but the attitude towards that position and towards those who held a different one. That's what seems so different from the approach current comics uh, often take. Even if the book, and as a character, Thor, were strongly on that side of the argument, the anti-nuke side, the idea that the book then made those activists the bad guys and the cause of the trouble, I just doubt you'd see that today. The idea that the characters on the right side of the argument 
that those motives wouldn't justify all of their actions. And we heard from Billy D, who called the book 1970s Madness at its Best, and said great point about Thor's dialogue with the anti-nuke protesters. Thank you, Billy. Y'all, all of you, are awesome listeners. Every last one of you. Social media love came from Bill from the Batpod, Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower from the Huntress podcast, Sean from Secret Wars and Beyond, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Sir, I was Joe, Jan Malandra, Karen from Between the Pages, Sir Luke Giaconetti, Super Comic Fun Time, Victor Natoli, Chris Willette, Randy Watts, The Shotgun Prodigy, Nine Boxer Nine, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Dano Cosmic, Mike from Comics in the Golden Age, Chris Lydon, Sharon Bakaria, and our reigning listeners of the year, the Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. So let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we get back, we're going to take another look at the Thunder God. Are you tired of fanboy comics podcasts? Looking for a show that really appreciates the comics storytelling medium and how it works? A show that looks at comics from any genre and anywhere in the world? Comparing the storytelling techniques of different creators and different comics cultures? With manga, newspaper strips, European comics, and more discussed alongside mainstream U.S. comics. A show that includes talks with well-known creators like James Robinson and Dan Jurgens, and with less famous creators that you really should know. And hey, we'll even critique your comic. If you're looking for that show, then you're looking for Deconstructing Comics, and it's right here at deconstructingcomics.com. Also available in iTunes and on Stitcher. This is Tim saying check out our show every Monday. That's Deconstructing Comics. And we're back. Mighty Thor number 20 at a cover price of $3.99, meaning it would seem that I acquired this book at a very impressive 93% discount. Except, as I've said for the last bunch of episodes, remember late last year and I talked about possibly changing the quarter bin criteria for coverage of the show, or, as the wise listener Vic mentioned, simply being less rigid in terms of our definitions. And we came up with a bunch of potential options. And you may recall, it was very non-controversial. Everyone was 100% totally on board with this unanimously. I mean, maybe not, not so much, but... Our plan for this sort of six-episode or so series, with the possible interruption of free comic book day, should, fingers crossed, that happen here in 2020, we're going to break our long-standing rules for the podcast, and in each of these episodes, we'll do the rule-breaking in a different way. And this rule-break is actually my favorite in terms of the original concept for the show, which was to talk about books that were available for cheap. Because public libraries are free, and free is the best kind of cheap. And some of them, some systems, some branches of libraries, purchase tons 
of trade paperbacks. And back in the days before the COVID quarantine, in literally the last few hours before our branches closed down for more than two months, I picked up about five or six trades and collections, including a really big, thick Thor hardcover. And from that, the randomizer landed on the Mighty Thor 20 from Marvel Comics, cover dated August 2017. Meaning, I got this book for like a 100% markdown off that original price. The only drawback was that I had to like turn it back in so other people could read it. What a ripoff! Just kidding. Middletons are library people. Down to our cores. The cover of Mighty Thor 20 by Russell Dodderman and Matthew Wilson shows big old bearded Volstag swinging his hammer or axe, which does not quite look like Mjolnir, and he is mightily smashing right through the logo, right through the words, the Mighty Thor. And now I know what you're thinking. Didn't Walt Simonson do that same thing with Beta Ray Bill way back in the day? That doesn't sound very original. Well, you're right, but it's an homage, not a ripoff. And the way you can tell is that the cover is signed R.D. and M.W. after W.S. Russell Dodderman and Matthew Wilson after Walt Simonson. After, in this context, is artist speak for in the style of. It's, it's a way of acknowledging a direct inspiration. And it is a pretty cool cover, both as a standalone and as this sort of historical reference. Against a, a very neutral background, the image really pops. It stands out. Now, I do have one serious problem with the cover, but I will get to that in the analysis portion of the episode. This cover month was a month that Marvel had themed alternate covers, and this time it was Mary Jane month. And that one's pretty good too, a dynamic and powerful Mary Jane having placed the hammer right on Spidey's belly, and he ain't going anywhere. This story, Baptism by Fire, was written by Jason Aaron, with art by Russell Dodderman and Valerio Schitti. We start with, well, in the floppy, I'm guessing we would start with a recap page because Marvel. But here in the trade, not so much. So as presented in the trade, we start with a map. It looks like it's been unrolled and is being held down in places by rocks, as if perhaps it's being looked at no, on a battlefield. There are ten realms growing from the world tree. In war is consuming them all, from root to branch, one by bloody one. And now, the war has come to the land of the dwarves, Nidvalir, in the Skornheim Mountains. Please forgive any issues I have with pronunciation of these Norse names. But we continue, where one finds great suffering, one will invariably find gods and bureaucrats. The senators from the Congress of Worlds arrive. Lady Solomon, Lord Milkmane, and Lord Volstag. And they are greeted by the dwarf Stonefoot, who is filling in because their king 
is working in the forges, which is considered in that realm more important than being a politician because dwarves have proper priorities. Stonefoot explains that when his people are pushed into stress into war, they make weapons. Tools of war we will all need if our realms wish to survive what comes. So the dwarves want the Congress of Worlds to see the light elf refugees that have arrived in their realm. This is the first time in as long as anyone can remember that the elves have fled their realm because the dark elves invaded it. Dwarves have historically traded weapons for food, but the elves' fields have been burned. So they don't have food. And because they can't trade, the dwarves don't have much food either. So the Congress people need to learn what's going on to, to, to witness it and go back to their worlds. Now at this point, we are introduced to a group of light elf children who Volstag takes an immediate liking to. He even shares this huge pack of food with them, even though it was supposed to be like his morning snack. He has an extreme soft spot for children, seeing as he has 14 of them himself, or 15, depending on the day of the week. Volstag hears an alarm go off, and then shortly, there is a huge foom and a fireball from the sky. Join the Congress, Volstag mumbles. Senators get maimed and murdered a lot less than warriors, I thought. But he looks around and realizes that he and the children are separated out from the others. And his most immediate concern is to protect the elf children, to to get them away from there. He calls out to Heimdall for aid. Or, as he explains to the elf kids, I have a friend in the sky, but I fear the smoke is blocking his vision. He leads the kids away. Don't be scared of a little fire. Why, this reminds me of the time I wrestled Needhog the dragon. We cut to old Asgard. Here once dwelt gods. Jane just pops in in a bubble of some kind and meets uh, Odinson, uh, our traditional Thor, who's hanging out with Thori, his half-hellhound, half-direwolf pet. Jane wants to smooth things over with him as she feels her death from cancer is imminent. She's sort of trying to put her affairs in order, including apologizing to Odinson for not having told him sooner her situation. And Odinson comes across in this conversation as a complete loser bro. Jane is attempting to ask and speak in a a gentle and kind way, and he's having none of it, exemplifying many of the bad ways in which men act in our society today. He basically makes it all about him, even though his former girlfriend is the one approaching death. She needs compassion from the big guy right now, and he does not even come close to providing it. Before things get too uncomfortable, maybe ugly, between them, Mjolnir arrives with a zoom and slams to the ground. And Jane knows what that means. If that's here, there must be some trouble. She stumbles and falls trying to reach the hammer, seeing as she is riddled with stage four cancer. She confesses to having contemplated never changing back to Jane, just letting Jane disappear, die, or 
just not be anymore. Just staying the goddess of thunder forever. Odinson does not answer, more or less completely blowing her off. As final conversations of reconciliation go, this one doesn't. We cut back to the other survivors of the attack, not Volstagg and the children, but the senators and the other elves. And we learn that Senator Milkbane has been killed. And we learn that the mode of attack was Muspelheim fire, from the land of the demons. Nothing stopped this fire. It burned all it touched. Flesh, stone, river, all burn. Then we jump back to Volstagg, and the kids are starting to get worried that Volstagg doesn't know where they're going, which is pretty true. Volstagg does not know how to save the children. He can comfort them. He can tell them that they'll all arrive at his house soon, and it'll be omelets for everyone. But it's starting to get to him. Maybe it's getting into his head that he won't be able to save these children. And as they're trudging across the Dwarven Mountains, they see a creature crash in front of them. It is a Firefly Raider, loaded with maggot bombs. All hail the Queen of Cinders, a fire goblin says. All burn! Maybe that anti-nuke crowd from last episode can start a new anti-maggot bomb crusade, which I think I would be all for. And with a foaboom, demon fire erupts. We got back to the remaining senators who've made it to the explosion scene. They say Muspelheim fire burns hotter than lava, hotter than the sun itself. And once it ignites, they say it burns through anything it touches. There's one thing in existence that can neutralize the fire's effects. One thing only it cannot burn. Fire goblin blood. And they see standing amidst the smoke of the incinerated area. Volstag covered in fire goblin blood. So he alone was not burned. The elf children, they are all gone. Each and every one of them. And then we end the issue some unspecified time later in old Asgard. Volstag hasn't slept. He hasn't closed his eyes. Hasn't eaten a bite. He hasn't heard the voice of his wife or his friends, his doctors, his children. All he hears is the roar of the flames and something else. Something calling to him. Not Mjolnir, but a glowing silver hammer. The realm needs a new kind of Thor. The world tree is burning and bleeding. No storm can put out this blaze. No thunder. Only blood. And he grabs it and lifts it over his head. Behold the war, Thor, and prepare to bleed. The end. So what did I think of this? Way back on Blaine Dowler's Marvel 75 Greatest Podcast from a few years ago, I covered the first batch of issues from Jason Aaron's Thor run. And I thought they were really good. 
not necessarily that they deserve to be in a list of Marvel's 75 greatest stories, like they were, but I thought they were really good. I was joined on that episode by Ed Moore of the Mighty Thorcast, and my recollection is that he didn't like them quite as much as I did. And between the Mighty Thorcast and general comic book osmosis, and occasionally dipping into recent Marvel books, I've been able to keep abreast, more or less, of the goings-on in the book. So I got to this, knowing that Jane was Thor, and not minding that, to be honest, and also knowing that she had been stricken with cancer, and that her life was at risk from the disease. So I had a sense of what was going on, but, but I did not expect what I got in this specific issue. So let's acknowledge the obvious. This is a rough read. This is a long story arc, this war with Malekith and the Dark Elves. And I don't totally know where this issue fits in to that timeline, but I would think that this issue has got to be near the emotional bottom, at least in, 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 in terms of, of resonance. Maybe, maybe this represents the end of Act 2 where everything looks its most bleak. Jane is dying. Our OG Thor is acting like a dunderhead. And a dozen elf kids just got obliterated. But if you know me, you know I don't need happy to enjoy a work. I want to be moved. Sometimes that's intellectually, but sometimes it's emotionally. And in terms of emotion, that emotion doesn't have to be happy. I I just like being affected, impacted in some way. And this certainly accomplished that. It was rough, it was sad, and it was effective. But it ended on a triumphant note of a sort, or at least a hopeful note. I'm not sure what this exact hammer represents, if it takes worthiness to lift it. If so, perhaps one purpose of this issue was to demonstrate just how worthy Volstagg indeed is. Because we certainly got that. The interactions with the children, the running theme of food and omelets. It was just light enough to work, not funny exactly, but a bit of lightness in a tense situation, which is what adults often try to do, caring for children in a tense situation. But the sense of gloom from the war, the effects of Malekith's dark elf attacks, they're clear and obvious and painful. Now, here we are dealing with politics again, forgive me in advance. But generally, I think that the bigger the entity being governed, town, city, state, nation, planet, multiple worlds, the less effective that government is probably going to be. So the idea of a congress of worlds causes me much deep discomfort. And one thing we see here in the Council of Worlds was that senators don't do much. They seem to talk a lot. And at best, maybe kind of inept. Come on. They even let Volstagg be one. How serious can the job be? As heroic as he is with the kids, you don't get the idea that diplomacy is his strong point. I don't see him as a technocrat or someone with a strong sense of uh, theories of governance. I mean, my point is that you have one world attacking a bunch of other worlds. 
and the whole bunch of other worlds ought to be able to beat back the one world. But because of the senators and their visiting and their talking, they're in the process of getting run over by Malekith and his elves. The fight shouldn't have gotten this far. I, I guess that's my point. These fictional elf children did not have to fictionally die. Except that it's, it's fiction and wringing emotions out of us. That's sort of what fiction does. But you know what I mean. But that is just a bunch of fiddle-faddle. Let's get to the really important stuff. The serious topic that needs serious consideration. And in my case, I'm just going to let my anger go here. I hate covers that spoil the last page reveal of a comic. What is even the point of that? Look, this is an amazing cover and a great homage like I said before, but couldn't this work for, I don't know, next issue? Or whenever Volstagg actually swings that big hammer of his in war, in a story? That's the time to use this very poster-worthy splash cover. The last page is potentially a great moment, potentially a great surprise. But not if I see the cover and think, huh, you know, lots of people have gotten hammers recently. There have been a lot of Thors. I guess Volstagg will get one this issue too. Ho-hum. Yes, there's a lot of action in the story, a lot of drama, a lot of fire and explosions and sound effects. There were plenty of scenes you could have selected and used for a cover. Like I said, save this cover for next issue. I'm not sure, but somehow I think previews might be to blame, revealing covers and plot synopses months in advance. I'm serious about that, but I haven't quite fully baked that idea and worked out the details, but I kind of blame them, I think. Now, of course, covers often spoil what's going to happen inside an issue, except for, you know, poster style or, or themed covers, like Jenny Frisson often does, for example. And I often like those. I think DC has done some interesting work in the last few years in updating uh, or adjusting what a comic cover can look like by de-emphasizing the title, logo, and the name of the comic, all that stuff. And there have been some striking ones, but, but they're often more symbolic, not portraying an actual scene or event from a story. And my issue is not that revealing anything in the issue is a problem. But the closer the cover image is to the end of the issue, the less I like it. And when it is literally, actually, the event on the last page, the last panel, the last thing we see, that's when I hate it. So I literally have a love-hate relationship with this cover. It's wonderful, and I kind of hate it. It's like an Agatha Christie novel where the cover shows the secret surprise murderer, fully identifiable, actually committing the murder. That's not how you do mysteries. That's not how you do comic books. Now, as I say that, I do remember one mystery collection I read when I was a kid. A thin paperback collection of a handful of Sherlock Holmes stories. And the cover is burned into my mind to this day because it shows the reveal of the great story, The Speckled Band. I'm not going to describe the story or reveal the reveal, 
but suffice it to say that the solution is dramatically portrayed on that cover. But enough with the cover of this issue. Let's get back to the actual story stuff, at least for a minute or two here. And I'm going to make another bold, bold comment. Because I'm feeling especially controversial. And I don't have any sponsors on the podcast or Patreons, so who's going to cancel me? Overall, I believe DC has a much better, and I mean quantity and quality, a much better selection of pets and animals than Marvel does. I recently read on the DC Universe app a big collection that came out last year called Dog Days of Summer. It contained a number of animal-themed stories featuring Crypto, of course, but also Bat-Cow and Dexter the Rage Kitty, among others. No Ace the Bat Hound, which was a big mistake. And there was not a super smart talking monkey to be found in the entire 80 pages. That, a huge missed opportunity. But over at Marvel, with the exception of Lockjaw, and I guess recently Rocket Raccoon, Marvel does not have a great history of animal or pet characters, or at least the deep bench that DC does. If I'm wrong on this, feel free to contact me. But that is why I really appreciated the introduction of Thori a few years back, which I think was in one of the Loki-based series, possibly Agent of Asgard, more likely Journey into Mystery. And Thori worked with Loki, and it was a pleasant surprise to see the big dog here. That was a nice moment in an otherwise pretty intense scene between Thor and Jane, a scene that did not go well, actually. But seeing Thori, that really helped. But have no fear, I'm not going to let the lack of super smart talking apes in this story, or any Marvel story, affect my verdict. The Verdict on Mighty Thor 20, Adventurous, Dramatic, and, since I got this from the library, free! So this is a definite public library steal, and a quarter bin steal as well, if you're lucky enough to find it somewhere at that most magical of prices. I mentioned Ed and Terry Moore before, and their podcast, The Mighty Thorcast. For another view of this issue, I direct you to episode 152 of their fine show. And if I had planned it better, or if I'd just been luckier, I could have covered it here on episode 152 of my show also, instead of 154. We were so close to synergy. So close. That wraps up my coverage of Mighty Thor 20, bringing episode 154 to a close. And next time, we're breaking another rule, although actually it's pretty much the same rule, by looking at a comic that anyone with an internet connection can read for free. We'll be diving into the world of public domain comics by looking at Sam Hill, Private Eye, number seven, from Close Up, a part of Archie Comics cover dated 1952. And if all goes well, I won't be alone. If you have, any questions or comments about this issue or the episode Comic Book Pets, 
breaking my rules, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.